118 days. For 118 days, I prayed for four men by name, men I had never met, but I didn't miss a single day of those 118 days. Tom Fox, Harmeet Singh Sudan, Norman Kember, and Jim Loney. I don't think I'll ever forget their names. In 2005, these four men were taken hostage in Baghdad, Iraq. It's hard to believe it's over a decade ago now. Two were Canadian, one was US American, one was English. All were part of Christian peacemaker teams. Each had responded to Jesus' prophetic call to live out a nonviolent alternative to cycles of violence and revenge in our world. For 118 days, I prayed for these four men by name every day. During those 118 days, my congregation in Chicago lit four candles for them every Sunday on our altar and prayed for them, again, by name, every single Sunday. Tom, Harmeet, Norman, and Jim. After the 104th day, we began lighting only three candles and left a fourth unlit candle on the altar in remembrance of Tom Fox, whose murdered body had been found. And on the 118th day, the day of their release, we celebrated and gave thanks to God, even as everyone, I think, who was connected to this story, experienced ambivalence at the means of their release, achieved as it was by a unit of British special forces smashing through the door of their captivity in full battle gear. For 118 days, I was faithful in intercessory prayer for these four men in a way that I don't think I ever had been before and probably have not been since. 118 days. I no longer recall the precise date of the party when I first met Jim Loney in person. But it was at least 118 days after his 118 days of captivity and my 118 days of prayer for him. And I can still see him in my mind's eye, as clear as if it were yesterday, walking through the back door of the Deerst family kitchen. I recognized him immediately, of course. His image had been all over our congregation and news media. Jim, I said, it is so good to see you. I prayed for you every day. And what my body did in this moment of greeting is a bit of a blur. I may have walked toward him. I may have cried or even wept. I may have hugged him. I may have put my hands on his face. Oh, please, I hope I did not put my hands on his face. <laughs> I honestly don't recall exactly what my body did. What I do recall is the deer in headlights look on Jim's face in response to me and my effusive greeting of him. I know that whatever I did or said, or at least the manner in which I said it, or even just the look on my face was completely inappropriate. 
for two people who were meeting for the very first time. I spoke and behaved in an overly familiar way and got pretty immediate feedback that it wasn't okay. <laughs> and to be clear, this is in no way criticizing Jim for his reaction to me. His response was a completely appropriate response to my completely inappropriate behavior. Now, I can be socially gregarious and effusive, and I know that, but I don't often make social gaffes, at least not of this magnitude. And so as I reflected on this experience in the next days and weeks and wondered what exactly had happened and why, I came to understand that I experienced an intimacy with those four men over those 118 days of prayer for them, that praying for them on my own and with my church, that lighting candles for them on the altar every week in worship with my community, that showing up for public actions and prayer vigils, that being in community with folks who did know them personally, even though I didn't, that being intimately connected with Christian peacemaker teams and their office there in Chicago and those who were responding to media requests and communicating with family members of the hostages and interfacing with government officials. At that time, I even had a good seminary girlfriend who was staying with me who was answering the phones at the CPT office that were literally ringing off the hook, as you can imagine, in those days. That somehow all of this led to a feeling of familiarity and intimacy and even love with four men who were strangers to me. And that love, that feeling of familiarity and intimacy was really one-sided, <laughs> but no less real. And then I began to wonder if this is why Jesus said what he did about enemies in the Sermon on the Mount and in the excerpt that we heard this morning from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Abba in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I began to wonder if we might run out of enemies if we really prayed for them every day. If we might pray ourselves out of enemies. Would we find ourselves growing in a sense of familiarity and intimacy with those we find it hardest to love if we prayed for them by name every single day? If we lit candles for them with our community every time we gathered? Would we find ourselves growing in love all because of prayer? I wonder. Our just peace focus this week is just peace among the people so that human lives are protected. And we've been drawing on this World Council of Churches document. World Council of Churches put out this ecumenical call to just peace. And the challenge that is laid before the church in this ecumenical call to just peace is a stiff challenge. It is not for the faint of heart. In this section just peace among people so that human lives might be protected, it calls for no less than the church engaging in global politics. 
Two magnificent crises threaten our world in this era, according to the call. The first is nuclear holocaust and the proliferation of weapons, especially weapons of mass destruction. And the second, climate change, which links us, of course, to our Just Peace series, or uh, theme just a couple weeks ago, Just Peace with the Earth. That second one, climate change, they talk about the proliferation of lifestyles of mass extinction. This is profound. I'm going to say it again. The proliferation of lifestyles of mass extinction. These two crises are the two major crises facing us as a world in these days. And I'm not about to suggest that in the face of these two global crises, all we need to do is pray. And everything will get better. But neither am I willing to dismiss prayer as irrelevant or ineffectual. Perhaps Jesus knew exactly what he was saying when he taught us to pray for and love our enemies. Just imagine disarming an enemy, getting that deer in headlights look from an enemy with an effusive, genuine, loving greeting, completely inappropriate given the actual nature of your relationship. Imagine how disarming that might be. Some of you may know and others may not that I participated in a two-week delegation to Israel and Palestine with Christian peacemaker teams in 2003. I know just enough about the historical and contemporary struggles over that land to refrain from suggesting that all we need to do is pray and suddenly there will be a just peace among the peoples of that land. During our adult Sunday school today, we are honored to welcome two guests, Eitan Isaacson and Lubna Alzaru. Both identify as activists. Eitan is Jewish-Israeli and Lubna is Palestinian. And they're going to help us explore what just peace in Israel-Palestine might look like. And though I have not checked with them on this explicitly, I suspect they will also not prescribe a simple prayer regimen to address the realities of the occupation and divided peoples and cycles of violence in that land. Neither, however, am I prepared to dismiss prayer altogether. I know just enough to know how very much I don't know, and as we turn our gaze and our focus toward this one particularly fraught region of the world, I know that I don't have the time or the expertise to analyze a complex political situation and offer a neat and tidy action list for responding. So instead, this morning, I want to tell a story, another story. It may, in fact, be a story of prayer for and with supposed enemies. We sat in a circle in a living room, sipping tea. Rami Elhanan had invited us to his home. Rami is a Jewish-Israeli whose 14-year-old daughter, Smedar, was killed by a Palestinian suicide bomber. Our co-host was Adele Misk, a Palestinian man whose father was murdered by Jewish settlers. Together, these two men, these two families, had co-founded the Bereaved Parents Circle in Jerusalem. 
Together in just one year, they had lectured at 1,400 schools throughout the region. Together, they'd begun a summer school for children who have experienced death in their immediate families due to the occupation and violence. Together, they'd sponsored a telephone hotline that connects Israelis and Palestinians and is called Hello Salam. Together, they'd organized blood drive exchanges between Jews from Jerusalem and Palestinians from Ramallah. Blood drive exchanges. Donating blood across lines that had caused so much blood to be shed, infusing themselves literally with the blood of the other, the supposed enemy. We sat in a circle in a living room, sipping tea with Rami and Adele, an unlikely pair. Now very close friends, they believe that if they who have paid the highest price can talk with each other and work together for a just and peaceful resolution, anyone can. Now I'm not about, about to suggest that all Israelis and Palestinians need to do is sit around and drink tea and get along. But neither am I willing to dismiss this prayerful communing with one another as irrelevant and ineffectual, especially when it leads to working together at systemic change, as Rami and Adele have done, and the bereaved parents' circle there in Jerusalem. I need to pause to note for just a moment that there's something fundamentally off about casting my and our gaze to some other corner of the world without at least mentioning the giant plank in our own eyes. What moral authority do we as U.S. US Americans have to speak into any global situation of conflict? What respectability do we have? None would be my answer. (laughs) Our own house is in shambles. And yet, even as we turn our gaze toward Israel-Palestine, I note that this isn't just out there somewhere. Our tax dollars are a major player in Israel-Palestine. So are our consumer dollars. And so are our invested dollars. And our Stewardship Council here at SMC has already done some good discerning work in thinking about this. What is our, how is our money connected with that region and other conflict zones around the world as part of our proposed new investment policy that you'll see soon if it's, I have been off email. Maybe it got into your email inbox this week. If not, you'll see it soon in preparation for our November congregational meeting. Which companies do we want to steer our dollars away from? And perhaps even more importantly, where do we want to be invested? Where do we want our dollars and our support to go? The reason I was off email this week, uh, many of you know, is I was spending time with my in-laws. And uh, my parents-in-law have been leading cross-cultural groups in the Middle East for many years. They spend nearly half their year there each year uh, for a long time, year in and year out. And I asked my mother-in-law just yesterday as we were driving her to the airport, 
um, what she thought about just peace in Israel-Palestine. Is it possible, and what is our role? And she said, peace may be possible, justice is getting harder and harder. But, she said, she has these two friends who report that they can sit in a circle of Israelis and Palestinians addressing the biggest issues, including Jerusalem, including Palestinian refugees and the right of return, including Jewish-Israeli settlements. These are the big, sticky points. And these friends of hers can wrestle through those biggest issues and agree on a general path moving forward. And are you ready for the twist? You might even be able to anticipate it. It turns out she was referring to Rami and Adele. We know these same men. Rami, whose daughter was killed by a Palestinian suicide bomber. Adele, whose father was killed by Jewish-Israeli settlers. Maybe there really is something to that communal prayer of drinking tea with one another. Maybe there's something to it. It turns out that my in-laws have been friends with these two families for a very long time and that they've even hosted them in their home in Harrisonburg. We never put this together until just yesterday. They even had the honor of accompanying them to Nickel Mines where they sat around a table illuminated by an oil lamp with Amish families whose children had been killed by the mass shooting at their school sharing stories of the most intense grief, the most unimaginable sorrow, and sharing stories about their respective choices not to lash out in violence, but instead to interrupt the cycles of violence that will steamroll us all if we allow them. Come, let us go up to the mountain of our God. Let us sit around oil, lamp, lit tables and share stories. Let us drink tea in living rooms. Let us disarm our enemies because we have grown to love them through our faithful prayer. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Abba in heaven. And so, we pray. I invite you to join me in prayer as I pray this Muslim, Jewish, Christian prayer for peace from Pax Christi, USA. Let's pray. O God, you are the source of life and peace Praised be your name forever. We know it is you who turns our minds to thoughts of peace. Hear our prayer in this time of war. Your power changes hearts. Muslims, Christians, and Jews remember and proudly affirm that they are followers of the one God. Children of Abraham, Sarah and Hagar, brothers and sisters, kin. Enemies begin to speak to one another. Those who were estranged joined hands in friendship, 
nations seek the way of peace together. Strengthen our resolve to give witness to these truths by the way we live. Give to us understanding that puts an end to strife. Mercy that quenches hatred. And forgiveness that overcomes vengeance. Empower all people to live in your law of love. And God's people together said, Amen.